Um, thanks to both brothers who opened in prayer. I really did appreciate what you said, and both of you used the word of like continuance. And uh, this really is a continuation of yesterday. Um, for those of you who are there, we really had the theme of Nehemiah chapter 8. And uh, I believe the Lord has something for us to continue through that. But I'll remind you that in Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, one of the things that happened was when Ezra went and stood before the people and did this and opened the book, what did God's people do? All right, stand up. I'm going to ask um, here on this side, do you want to turn to Matthew 19? Here in the middle, Mark chapter 10. And stage left, do you want to turn to Luke chapter 18? And I'm going to ask a volunteer for the uh, Luke crowd. You're uh, going to be Luke 18, and we'll get you in a second to read 18 to 23. Um, Those in the middle, Mark chapter 10, and you're going to read 17 to 22. But we'll start in Matthew. And um, if someone on this side here would be so gracious as to read Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Now behold, what came and said to him, O teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. But if you want to enter the life, Awesome. Thank you, Rick. And if someone here in the middle wants to read Mark 10 and then 17 to 22. Go ahead, Tom. Thanks, Tom. And then everyone, if you want to turn to Luke 18, and then I'll get a reader on this side. Um, 18 to 23, please. And all God's people say, and amen. Father, just, um, I'll be the uh, second brother that just brings this before you and simply ask, Lord, yeah, this has been of you, now through you and to you. Um, Remove me from the equation. And um, I love just in the word, the word of the Lord came through, but the emphasis isn't the through, it's the word of the Lord came. Um, Sincerely, uh, just asking for all of us to hear, to heed, to respond, 
and enter into the joy of the Lord this day. For your name's sake, we pray it, Lord Jesus. Amen. Feel free to take a seat. I have uh, one thing to share with you this morning, um, but if you know me um, and the way Lord's built me, um, it'll take a few minutes, and it's going to take three parts for me to do so. So if you're someone who takes notes, um, my title is Rich Young Rulers, and the three parts, they're meeting, the meaning, and our means of escape. They're meeting the meaning, our means of escape. Part one, they're meeting. Jesus Christ is holy. Amen? Amen. Yes and amen. He's Acts 4, your holy servant Jesus. Hebrews 7, he's exactly what we need. Holy, harmless, undefiled, And you have a great definition thereafter, separate from us. Um, He is the second person, second co-equal, co-eternal, co-existent member of the holy, holy, holy God. Amen? What does that mean, though? When we talk about Jesus being holy, hagiadzo, if you want to drop some uh, Greek in there. I mean, we had a series on it, but what does it actually mean? What comes to mind when you hear the word holy? Otherness. Otherness. I like that one. Sinless, okay. Set apart. That's the classic one. I usually remember all the S's. Set apart, separate, sacred, sanctified. Um, Simply put, otherness. He's not like us. And normally when we talk about the holiness of God, and specifically the person of Jesus Christ, we think of him in terms of, and rightfully so, um, not otherness, like we have some Americans here with us today that they're just not like us Canadians, but um, think of it not on this level, but like this. He's better than we are. Far better than we could ever imagine. But I also want to just suggest to you that he's different than us. Different, more different, more distinct, just not like us in terms of he's far different than we can imagine. And case in point is this meeting, this encounter recorded for us in all three of the synoptics. We'll use Luke just as the launching point for it. That he's not exactly what we'd expect. He's not exactly like what we would be. I mean, um, perhaps think of it this way. Um, Show of hands, how many of us know who Brandon Leslie is? A few of us, okay. So he's our newly elected member of parliament here from the riding of Portage Liscar. For American friends, just think congressman um, from our area. Um, If you don't know much about him, he's about my age. I shouldn't give it away, but he's mid-30s. I understand he's either common law or married. I don't know if he has kids. Um, I don't know tons about his financial state, but he does come from the Leslie family that owns a bit of land, so even if they're cash poor, I mean, there's going to be some money there if they want to liquidate those assets. And um, as one who's in his mid-30s and coming from a traditional conservative firm riding, I mean, um, his prospects politically are pretty good that should the conservatives federally get in, like there's no doubt he'll be part of the caucus and a future leader. What you have there... It's probably a poor example, but the closest I can think of, of a fairly rich young ruler. So imagine yesterday you were under the tent, and um, to your surprise, so was Brandon Leslie. And at the end of one of the messages, um, he runs up to the front, gets on his knees, and says, Pastor Josh, and you can imagine, think whatever Josh you want, it doesn't matter to me. Pastor Josh, what can I do to get what you have? What can I do to get in on this eternal life you're speaking of? How would you respond? Would there be a lot of excitement? Would there be like uh, texting one another, truly God is in this place? Would we be like excited, maybe posting, taking pictures, sending it to those who aren't there and say like, this is going to be great, like a major political figure everyone knows that he's like right there, repent, like this is going to be amazing, right? Maybe Rick through the eye of faith is running off and going to set up a pool and get the water in there because we're going to have a baptism later today, right? Like we would be like, yes, and um, Pastor Josh, I don't see where the other one ran, Um, oh, he's there, well, how would you respond? 
Yeah, Acts 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. Maybe you want to do something? There's only one thing you can do, says John 6. Only one work, believe. Show of hands, how many of us at that moment would be like, um, excuse me there, Brandon, um, that word pastor you just used, poimen in the Greek, um, there's only one individual in the entirety of the word of God of who that title applies. Um, his name's Jesus. He's the good poimen, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief. There's only one pastor. Why are you calling him pastor? Any of us think that would be the right response in that moment? Not so with Jesus Christ, the Holy One. How does he respond? Good teacher, what, what thing can I do to enter in or possess or inherit eternal life? And he's like, why are you calling me good? There's only one who's good. His name's God. What, are you calling me God? And I can assure you, there was an awkward pause at this point. And if you read Matthew's gospel, it draws it out a little bit more, where there's the pause, and then finally the Lord says, well, if you want to enter into eternal life, keep the commands, keep the commandments. And at which point the rich ring ruler looks at him and says, well, which ones? Now, Again, if someone in my situation said, which commandments do I need to keep in order to enter eternal life? What would my response be? All of them. All 613 precepts described in the Old Testament. All the time, all the days of your life, all and in every aspect. Every single last one. What does Jesus say? You see in verse 20. Well, you know the, and you can put in brackets, 10 commandments. Now, is Jesus right in what he's saying? I mean, like, technically what he's saying is true. If each one of us actually kept all the commandments all the time and in every single facet, I mean, there'd be no sin, therefore no separation. I guess we'd have life and all the rest. But, like, is that what you'd expect? I mean, all through the Gospels up to this point, Jesus on every occasion is saying, I've come to seek and to save the lost, what I'm looking for is broken and contriteness. There's nothing you can do. Your righteousness has to exceed the best of the best over here. You gotta be perfect, just like your Father in heaven's imperfect, and none of you are, so what you need to do is be broken, be humble, be like um, what I just talked about earlier in the chapter. Don't be that self-righteous one. Be the one who says, um, have mercy on me. That's the one who gets justified. At the end of the chapter, same thing. Son of David, son of David, a title for Christ, the Messiah, have mercy on me. That's what he's looking for. And so is it a bit surprising that Jesus right off the bat is saying, well, you know the commandments, keep them. Now, it's not that surprising he mentions the 10 and rather than starts quoting 613, I mean, the Decalogue, those 10 were the first ones that were given to Moses on Sinai. They're basically the whole way in which the whole the Old Testament hangs on. Um, when we think of the 10 commandments, don't think five and five, think four and six. Um, the first probably the first stone had the four, and that was um, the love of the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Those are the ones that dealt with the vertical. No gods before me. Don't use my name in vain. Work. Keep the Sabbath. No, uh, no images. And then um, the second one, kind of like it, gets the horizontal, love your neighbor as yourself. And there's six there. Um, but if you were going to start quoting the Ten Commandments to this guy who comes to you, um, where would you start? Yeah, I'd probably start with the first one, right? No gods before me. Where does Jesus start? <laughs> he starts in the second one. And if you're going to start with the second one, wouldn't you probably start with like the first one that's mentioned, like number five? But if you look at it, here's what Jesus does. Well, you know the Ten Commandments. You know the first one he starts with? Number six. Then he goes to number seven. Then he goes to number eight. Then he goes to number nine. And what would you think would come next? Yeah, you know what he does next? Five. <laughs> Six, seven, eight, nine, five. And no doubt this guy, if he was rich and young at this point, his parents were off. He was probably the firstborn and been getting the devil inheritance, and now he was probably making more on top of more and was doing well, so he had honored his father and mother. And so no doubt he's hearing this, and he's like, yeah, I haven't killed anyone, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't honored my parents, I did that, I fulfilled that one. All of these I have kept since I was basically out of diapers. Even before my bar mitzvah, I've been keeping these things. Now, if I'm in that situation, you know what I'd say to him? Pfft, you liar. 
You're telling me you've kept those perfectly, right? First John 1, 8, if anyone says that he's without sin, he's perfect, deceive, the truth's not there. I would be dropping Sermon on the Mount on him. If I was on the doors and heard that, I'd be like, yeah, okay, so that number six one, where you shouldn't murder. Um, well, you ever been angry with someone in your heart? Same difference. Oh, you haven't committed adultery, that's nice, but you ever lusted after a woman in your heart? God looks at the inside, not much of a difference except the outward act. Is that what Jesus says? Not so with Jesus Christ, the Holy One. The reason I had us read these is because you get a different facet. And in the Mark account, Mark 10, 21, one of the most beautiful statements in Scripture, that Jesus, after this guy said, all these, he actually says teacher, he drops the good part, by the way, teacher, all these things I have kept since I was out of diapers. It says Jesus looked at him and loved him. It wasn't this that Jesus was working with. It was coming from this, the heart. He wasn't trying to win some argument. He was trying to win the guy. And then Jesus says this, as you have in the Luke account, you still lack one thing. And I'll tell you, if I was one of the disciples, if I was right beside Peter and a little bit more rambunctious that day, I'd be like, well, one thing, well, two. Well, I guess it's two sides of the same coin. I would say, yeah, I guess there's one coin, right? Repentance towards God, turn it over, and faith in the Lord Jesus. Like, that's what you, is that what Jesus says? You lack one thing. And then he says, go, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, then you can come, follow me. Anyone a bit confused? Does, um, like if I was there that day, you read in one place that the, uh, Peter takes him aside in front of all the disciples and rebukes him. Um, I gotta be honest, I would have done that. For most of my life when I've read this story, I would have been thinking this through. I mean, I would be like, Lord, did you, um, did, was there some weird mushrooms we had last night or anything like that? Are you, are, you, are you feeling well? Like one thing and you just listed five. And um, man, this doesn't sound like grace. This doesn't sound like gospel of like God's goodness. It sounds like um, works. And just when you come to this point, when you expect the Lord Jesus to come with that one statement, like the humdinger out of nowhere that wins this guy as the great evangelist to himself and ties this all together and helps us understand, it doesn't come. When the rich young ruler heard this, he became very sorrowful and he was, for he was very rich. And in case you missed it, Matthew and Mark add that he was very sad and he walked away Sorrowful. Period. That's it. That's part one. That's their meeting. Thankfully, there's more, and it goes on from there, and now we've got to try to understand what is going on here. Um, would someone be so kind as to read verse 24 to 27 for us to look at number two, the meaning? Thanks, brother. So number two, the meaning. And just very quickly, um, within this section that was just read, we have, I don't know if rightly or wrongly, one of the most famous or most well-known statements Jesus ever made. It's found here in verse 25. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Um, now, admittedly, I've heard a lot of different explanations on this. Um, growing up, the one I heard about was the camel gate that apparently there was some camel gate in Jerusalem that if all the main gates were closed after hours, they had this tiny little one that the camel had to offload all its supplies and then crawl on its knees with its owner through. Um, the idea of getting rid of everything to enter and like, that's fine and I could be off here, but like you talk to archeologists and historians and say, A, that makes no sense and B, we've never found any evidence for it. And there's others who say this is a mistranslation. Instead of like camelots, it should be cameleon, talking about like a long cord, um, a long cable. Basically, they intertwined a bunch of rope to hold things together. And like the idea of you have to untwine everything until you get to the thinnest thing. And, but um, 
I don't know, call me simple, old-fashioned, just concrete thinker, but um, quoting another brother, Nate, um, what if Jesus meant what he actually said? What if by camel he meant camel? Yeah, as in the largest land animal that was in the Middle East that they would all be familiar with. And what if by eye of a needle they actually meant, you know, like eye of a threading needle, like the smallest man-made opening that they could conceive of at the time? What Jesus is doing here is giving a metaphor, not of difficulty or improbability or long shot, but absolute, utter impossibility. Um, Excuse my language, but basically think of a metaphor like a snowball's chance in hell, right? Think of like when pigs fly. That's what he's talking about. And if we're unclear about it, you go into verse 27 and he starts talking about the things that are impossible. Now, we do have to be clear here. Now, is Jesus teaching here that rich people cannot ever in any way, shape, or form enter into eternal life? No. I mean, we have a problem by going through scripture and saying like, what about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, David, Solomon, New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, um, Erastus, who, the treasurer of Corinth, that guy was loaded. Um, Interesting he's mentioned right beside a slave name. Um, Even like 1 Timothy 6 has been helpful to me where Paul gives commandments to Timothy to command rich believers in terms of what to do with their resources. I just want to say right off the bat, like what's said in verse 27 is not saying that Jesus doesn't say the things that are impossible with rich people are very possible with poor people. He says the things that are impossible with men, man, Might I suggest to you, after having meditated and thought this through and trying to put this together, might I suggest to you that what Jesus is teaching here is consistent with everything else we read in Scripture, but he's simply just emphasizing an added part to it. What he's saying consistently, which you see with everywhere in Scripture, is that it is absolutely, utterly impossible for any single one of us, man or woman, rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, young or old, to do anything in and of ourselves to enter into eternal life. Romans 3, we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. There's none of us who are righteous. None of us are good. None of us are good enough. None of us have enough riches of our own merit to somehow buy our way in. None of us are even poor enough to get enough pity. Just to recognize this, We can do nothing. It's impossible for any one of us. It's all of God. It's all by grace. Because if it involved any part of us, we would be sure to boast to everyone else. But the part that Jesus is emphasizing here is that while it's impossible for every single one of us, those who are rich in this earth, those who have earthly possessions and pleasures and treasures, it's even harder. Like, just basically say, bold it and capitalize it in three underlines. Now, again, I want to say, if anyone who's an Aquila and Priscilla wants to take me aside later and teach me more accurately these, I would appreciate it, or teach me the more excellent way. But the best way I have to try to explain this as to why is those things in this life that tend to keep us from God— that act as like spiritual buffers and hindrances and obstacles and barriers and barricades. Um, Those things that are in this life that keep us from seeking God, money and riches amplify them, intensify them, multiply them, magnify them, make them bigger and further and wider. Um, The inverse is true. Those things in life that God tends to use to get our attention, those attention grabbers, those crises that cause us to be cast upon him, those, um, I don't know, famines in foreign lands or earthquakes at midnight, those who have earthly treasures and resources, they tend to just minimize them, we'll say. Like when I talk about Earthquakes at midnight. It wasn't a Roman legion commander or a Roman captain who was working the graveyard shift. It's a plain old jailer. And when I talk about famines in foreign lands, we're talking about like the prodigal son. The key is that he'd already run out of resources. You can be sure if he still had resources, he wouldn't have come to his senses in that moment. 
Right, this is why James 2 says God's chosen poor people to be rich in faith because they need faith when these things come. Um, Psalm 55 is a gold mine. We don't quote it very often. I think it's verse 19 where it talks about like the wicked and wealthy. It says because they do not change, therefore they don't fear God. It's because like this inflation crisis doesn't change their lifestyle. Um, It's because when famine comes, they still have ample resources. Because they don't change in life and feel the turmoil and the turbulence as much, no respect, no need for God. And what we have here, congruent with the rest of Scripture, and again, search these things out, and I would really appreciate if someone wants to more accurately help me understand it, but our earthly temporal possessions and pleasures, our um, resources and riches, our comforts and conveniences, our um, reputation and renown and power and privilege— The more of those you have here on earth, it seems that there's a pretty general correlation that spiritual treasures, spiritual riches, um, it just, maybe I'll put it this way, spiritual eternal facets, um, more of these tends to correspond with less of these. Poverty, spiritual barrenness, impotency, deficiency, And might I simply add as well, that's not just true for those who are out there who don't know Jesus. Um, It also seems to be a corresponding thing for those who do. Like in the New Testament, there's one church, tell me which one it is, who um, in their thinking say, oh, we are rich, we have become wealthy, we have a need for nothing. What church was that? Laodicea. Then Jesus said, let me tell you how you're doing spiritually. You're Naked, blind, poor, wretched, miserable. I'll give you that again. Naked, blind, poor, wretched, miserable. Another church, you can tell me which one this is. I think it corresponds very much with what we see in North America. They said, oh, we're full, we're rich, we reign as kings. In terms of our spiritual gifts, we don't lack a single thing and we're all about the show and tell and you watch us all. Yeah. You know what Paul in the Spirit tells them? Are you not carnal? Basically means, outwardly, you look no different than the people that don't know Jesus and your babes. Spiritually, in terms of maturity, all throughout history, not just Old Testament, New Testament, but you follow church history, God's people have always done better with persecution, poverty, hard times than they have with so-called... Um, your best life now. The passage that Brendan wrote, read to us a few weeks ago, I guess a month ago, Deuteronomy 6, this is what God's warning. He says, look, when you get in the land, because you're gonna follow and you're gonna go, but when you get there and you get into cities that you didn't build and you're uh, comfortable in houses that are fully stocked and you never went to the grocery store to put them there, and uh, when you're drinking water from wells you didn't dig and when you're, um, I don't know, enjoying fruit from trees you didn't plant, watch out. Beware, because you know what's going to happen? You'll be complacent. You're going to forget the Lord, and the next verse that he mentioned is the key one, and your heart will be given over to idols. I don't know if we know this, but we've talked a lot recently about spiritual barriers and hindrances and obstacles and things that get in the way. Um, Can I suggest to you that the Word of God has a word for that? Starts with an I and ends with dolls. Idols. This was like a big breakthrough in my thinking a few years ago when I actually taught through um, the story of the Exodus. Like up until that point in my life, when I thought of idols, I thought of like Ashtaroth, Baal, Chemosh, Dagon, Moloch. I thought of like these wooden things and carvings that like what type of archaic people bow down and worship them and must like carry them everywhere and all the rest. I'm like, what? What's that? In med school, my eyes were open because I was a friend with like a lot of, I was the minority as the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male. Well, most of my friends um, were Kims from like South Korea or um, from Thailand and Southeast Asia. And it was a dumbfounding thing to me. I'd go to their house and like the same thing that was on my plate was on a small plate in front of something that I was offering incense to. And you realize there's a bunch of people out there. But I'm like idols. That's something in traditional Eastern societies not in our progressive West. And then the Lord opened my eyes. 
You don't go there now, but Ezekiel 14 was a gold mine for me. It talks about the fact that in Babylon, a couple years after they'd been taken in, elders of God's people, leaders come to Ezekiel and say, we want to ask the Lord, we want to inquire the Lord. And the Lord starts whispering in uh, Ezekiel's ear. He says, son of man, these men, what, am I going to let them inquire of me? Am I going to let them talk or ask things of me? Why would I do that? These men have set up idols, and it doesn't say in their homes, in their hearts. The word for idols there is actually quite comical. It's not the usual one. Um, it basically means um, round logs. And if you cross-reference it, we've got enough mature people thing. Um, think fecal material. Think dung. They've set up, compared to me, pieces of stool that's causing them to stumble into iniquity. I'll answer them according to the number of idols in their hearts. And what's really interesting, when you cross-reference it, the rest of the book of Ezekiel, like Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel 20, you would think in Babylon, this idolatrous, they had a God for everything type of culture that they would name some of them, like Marduk. Not a single mention I can find of a specific idol. It seems more than anything, these men who had set up idols in their heart, it was the lifestyle and the privileges and the wealth and the advanced technology that was happening in Babylon. 70 years later, like maybe one or 2% of the population is willing to go back because they were so, so comfortable there. And what the Lord has shown me is that um, idols are anything, and I mean anything, person, place, people, dreams, ideals, pursuits, anything that competes or takes first place in our hearts over God. 1 John 5, 21, the NLT, I love how it translated. We normally keep little children, keep yourself from idols. And it says, little children, or my little ones, keep yourselves from anything that would take God's rightful place in your heart. An idol is anything that becomes more central than God to your identity, your meaning, who you are. Anything more fundamental than God to your sense of self, your sense of worth, your value. Anything that becomes more important to you than God for your happiness, your joy, your satisfaction, your fulfillment. Anything that you love and long for more than God. Anything that you're putting your trust in, your dependency, your security in more than God. And in case I haven't said it, it can be anything. And one of the things that I see that's kind of surprising as you continue to meditate on this is that oftentimes these idols aren't overtly evil and wicked and sinful. Sometimes they're just things that are acceptable. Many times they're things that are good. But the problem is when something that's created comes in and takes the place of the creator. Like you and I, uniquely made in the image and likeness of God, and you go back to the beginning. We were made as created people to walk with and seek after God. We were meant to worship, adore, and love him. We were meant as one person, C.S. Lewis put it, to run on God. We have a God-shaped hole in our heart, and he's supposed to fill it, and when he fills it, we work properly. But Romans 1 makes it so clear that when we stop worshiping the creator, there's a vacuum there and we'll begin working and worshiping created things that will always lead to where this rich young ruler ended up, sad and sorrowful. Anything that takes God's rightful place in our heart, looking to a created thing to give us what only God himself can give. You want a list? Traditional one, Eastern culture, family. Keeping the family reputation going, looking to a spouse, looking to children, looking to our parents. They take first place. Back in Winnipeg, I was always dumbfounded by people that said, what do you mean you want us to come to a conference on Saturday? What do you mean Sunday afternoon and evening you would want to go and do something? That's family time. Another one that we have here in the West, career. Sometimes it's the pursuit of money. A lot of times, like in my career as a physician, like we often say that, like, you know, we're remunerated well. I'm not complaining on that, but like 
there's better ways to make money than become a lowly physician, especially in a rural setting. Um, but why did they go after that? It's the prestige of getting those MD letters after you and being called doctor. Our brother mentioned another one, comfort, leisure, recreation, hobbies. For him, it was hunting and fishing. That's what he looks to when the well runs dry. For some of us, it's um, health. It's this body of flesh. There's um, sisters that uh, I know who idol could be a certain body or dress size. For guys, it could be a number, like how many pounds you can bench press or a certain ideal physical attractiveness. For some, it's romance. For some, it's sports. That's been a big one in my life. When I was once an athlete and then afterwards, I got to follow my team or follow it all and know all the stats. Um, Older guys, after midlife crisis, we often transfer from sports to another thing where we follow called politics. And we're cheering our party on and we know everything inside and out and have uh, every news station on at all times. Some of it's its power. Some of it's its knowledge, being an expert or a guru that people will come to. We're just going to go put cards on the table. Big one here in the West is a dream. Freedom 55. Four bedroom, three bath, two car garage. And a boat out front to go to the cabin with. In the case of this rich young ruler, he was very rich. It was his riches. And it's not just the fact that he had a bunch of money in the bank for security. If a famine came, that he'd be okay, although that was part of it. But in that culture... Like this is what verse 26 says, who then can be saved? It was a sense that if you were rich, you were blessed and good. There's a reason why he was very rich, but he was also at a young age, probably a ruler of a synagogue and highly esteemed. This guy was on the fast track to the Sanhedrin. His idol, his riches and his resources. And you ask what the meaning of this encounter that he had with the Lord, the meaning of the meeting is simply this. It was the battle of the gods. Do you wonder why Jesus right at the bat knowing his heart says good? It's only one who's good is God. Introducing the idea right off the bat that we're going to have a conversation. If you look as me as God, you'll follow me. If you don't, you're going to choose your lowercase g God, your idol. Why do you think he goes to the Ten Commandments and lets them think for a second? Because first one is you shall have no gods before me. Why do you think he goes six, seven, eight, nine? What would you naturally fill in? Number ten. What's the tenth commandment? You shall not starts with a C and ends with of it. Covet, greed, the desire for more, the desire of what others have. If you look in the New Testament, there's about 35 times the word idols, idolatry, idol, and its variants are used. Only one exact thing is actually identified as an idol. You wanna know what it is? Twice, Colossians 3, 5, and I think Ephesians 5. Covetousness, which is Jesus Christ, knowing his heart, knowing this man, introduces the battle of the gods, and he's going to be, is it going to be me as capital G God, or is it going to be your riches and resources as lower case G God? And in one of the saddest things in all of scripture, here's a man who, unless he repented later in life, I want to tell you right now, isn't just tormented physically in a Christless eternity right now in hell but he's tormented by this encounter where he chose some shekels and denarii and drachma, things that you and I don't even know about and have no meaning nowadays, over Jesus Christ himself. Now here's where I hit the pause button. Up to this point, this has been like a nice sermon, hey? Nice little message that I could drop anywhere. Why am I going here today? Up to this point, I would have said, even yesterday, I would have said, I'm fairly persuaded. Now I'll just say I'm fully persuaded. This is a message for us here today at ABC. Six weeks ago, July 11th, the brothers met at the Peters, James Peters household. It was right after Jeremy's message on two days before on the Sunday where he talked about Judas, um, another young man who chose riches over the Lord Jesus and went away sorrowful. And um, we talked a lot about that. It was a neat evening. We talked, um, actually, it was very interactive talking about what things mean in Scripture, but we went quickly to prayer. And one of the things we prayed about is, Lord, we'd be fools if we didn't ask you to show us if we're deceived on anything. 
We'd be fools if we didn't ask you to show us like where we're at. We would be fools if we waited all the way till the end and then found out that we were deceived or fake or had something. And one of the things we prayed, and everyone said amen, and multiple brothers, as far as I can relax, prayed the same thing, was saying corporately, like there's Revelation two and three. The Lord Jesus wrote seven very real letters to seven very real churches and gave them an evaluation and told them some things. And we said, Lord, we'd be fools if we didn't ask you to write a letter. We don't know what this looks like, but would you at least write it to us and deliver it, and can we all read it and hear what the Spirit is saying? And can I tell you here, confidently in the Lord's presence, confirmed having talked to many of us in our midst and asking, do you think it's the same thing? I think the Lord has delivered it. I'm not saying I've read it all. I'm not saying I have everything. Um, I can assure you there's some assuring and reassuring parts. There's the, I know your works. We might be even like um, Thyatira where our works are more now than they were at the beginning. Um, There's a comforting, there's a compassionate heart element. Like what Kevin gave us last week where he talked about um, if you're sick, you don't wanna feed yourself but keep feeding, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Like, I know your hurts, we could say. There's no doubt he knows our, our faith and we're holding fast to teaching and like, there's good things. But um, the main message to five of the seven churches where it's followed by nevertheless, I have this against you. I wanna suggest to you that we have a major repent change the way you're viewing things, change the way you're thinking, and repent of your idols. I recognize what I'm saying here. I recognize I'm gonna have to stand before the Lord one day, and if I'm speaking a vision of my own imagination, it's not good. Why do I say that, though? The next brother who shared from here was Brendan, Deuteronomy 6. That was the subject. A week later when Josh, talking about the fear of the Lord and comfort of the Holy Spirit, he drops the eye bomb a few times in there and discusses it. We as brothers, there was a prayer retreat and one of the evenings when we just said, we wanna know where we're at too, Lord, this came up and many of us were confessing it personally. The next Tuesday at Brother's Prayer, we were at Kelly's for nearly two extra hours. Yes, confessing our tendencies, James 5, but also confessing this very thing. Person after person after person I ran into. First week of August, I had just had like divine appointments day after day after day. Multiple brothers and sisters and saying that something's not right. I'm hearing about the outreach and my heart's not flickering. My heart's chasing after other things and like there's no sin. But slowly but surely you find out there's other things. Confession of like this thing. Confession of YouTube and social media and video games and movies. Um, Volleyball's been mentioned for whatever that's worth. Um, Yesterday, hunting and fishing. I've heard of yard work and having the perfect yard, the perfect house. Um, Sleep has been one. That um, I'll give the Lord all that he wants, but I work my eight, 10, 12 hours, but my eight hours of sleep, I'll give it to the, you know, I will never stir myself up to take hold of him, Isaiah 64. For myself as well, the Lord's showing me a number of things lurking that could take first place. He's also showing me something that has. And it's not what you'd expect, but the Lord's showing me quite clearly ministry, Nathan, service. Not this, I'll do this, this doesn't actually give me that kick. It's this idea of the work of the Lord. People saved, souls saved, disciples made, churches established. Right, the furtherance of the gospel, prayer retreats, outreaches, and just seeing the work go forward, defining myself more as a servant than a son. Like the Lord's showing me my heart that I get more excited and joyful and like exuberant when I hear of good things happening in Brandon or Winnipeg or here than simply knowing that he will not fail nor be discouraged. Like my heart gets so much more excited about ministry than intimacy. I'm like, I'm Luke 10, the Lord keeps showing me, Nathan, you're more excited and jubilant over rejoicing over Satan fall from heaven than that your name's written in heaven. And that's not right. That's not gonna stabilize me when things aren't going well. Now, I know we all have consciences here. Some of us like to excuse, some of us like to accuse. I know there'll be some here that'll excuse and say, don't be hard on yourself, so hard on yourself. And I've heard that from people. Maybe. But um, when it comes to the subject of idols, I'm not sure we can ever say we're being too hard on ourselves. 
Like I read Psalm 106 the other day, different translation, but it says, your love or their love of idols was adultery in the sight of the Lord. Is a little adultery okay? Like if I were to confess to you, ah, there's a new secretary at work and I bought her flowers and I'm gonna take her in, she's pretty cute and that, and like, yeah, that's not a big deal. What would you say? That's right, no. <laughs> You're out of your mind. It says their love of idolatries was adultery. Idolatry is adultery. It even says it's what led to their destruction. You read Deuteronomy 7, the chapter after 6, and five to sevenfold, depending on the translation, I guess. But like, this is what you're supposed to do with idols. It doesn't say be cautious, be careful, put them away till you're mature enough to deal with it. Burn, break, cut down, crush, destroy, utterly detest, utterly abhor. I'll do that again. Burn, break, cut down, crush, destroy, utterly detest, utterly abhor. Why? End of Deuteronomy 7, lest your heart gets ensnared by it, unless you be doomed to destruction with it. It's destroy it now or be destroyed by it later. New Testament says the same thing. Keep yourself from them. Flee from it. Don't let yourself be, abstain from getting polluted by them. Have no fellowship with them who is an idolater. Have no fellowship with idols whatsoever. I don't think we can be hard enough. The inverse, though, for those of you who have a conscience right now that's burning and wondering, is this thing an idol or not? Um, talk with me more. I'll give you some better questions. But like, first and foremost, ask the Lord. The Spirit of God's job is to convict and to show. But if you want a really good question to ask yourself and then say, Lord, show me, try this one. You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. If the Lord asked you for it, your career, he says to Ezekiel, your wife's going to die today. You're going to give her up? Your children, your family, your dreams, your house. And it's not, oh, I guess I finally, it's um, Matthew 13. Is he the uh, pearl of great price? Is he that treasure? in field where it's for joy, you'd sell it all? Is it what Colin shared with our brothers the other night, Job 22, where as soon as you look at the Almighty as your gold, as your precious treasure, you drop the gold of Ophir in the dust and just keep walking? Now, please don't misconstrue what I'm saying here this morning or what I'm getting after. This is not legalism, right? I have one of these. Um, Nick and I have Netflix. If any of you want, we have Courtney and Jeremy's password for Prime. Um, it's not no smartphones, no Netflix, no volleyball, no fun whatsoever. Um, that's Colossians 2. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. It seems so wise, but is absolutely useless against the indulgences of the flesh. Um, it's kind of like our bodies, that if you get rid of one demon, hey, that demon can go, and if things are empty here, it's a vacuum. It'll go at seven worse ones and come in. Our hearts are built to idolize and worship something. If you force one out, seven more evil ones are gonna come right back in, especially in this greenhouse of idols, quoting Kurt, who quotes Randy, who probably quotes someone else. I, I also wanna say that this morning's not me trying to come here with a rod and like lay down the law and smack people down. Um, quite honestly, I wanna come with a spirit of love and gentleness. Like, I wanna say this with a smile on my face. Um, it's not the angry, wrath-consuming fire of God fist out that leads people to repentance. What is it? It's the goodness of God. Peter says to a crowd in Acts 3 of Jewish people, he says, repent and be changed. Why? There'll be times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord to come. Paul writes all of 2 Corinthians, those last chapters in particular, saying, I'm writing this to you guys before my third visit so you can repent. So when I can come, I'm not coming with the apostle, like apostolic authority to destroy. It's to build you up. I'll come with gentleness. It'll be a joy. The real heart of it, when you read those seven letters to the church of Revelation, comes in like the last one, where he says, as many as I am disappointed, angry, frustrated with, I rebuke and chasten. It's as many as I... And that's not the word agape for love. It's philios, as many as I really like. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
Those letters written to those seven churches of repent of X, Y, or Z wasn't because I'm so angry and disappointed with you. You better do it or I'm just... He gives a warning and says, just change it. And if we do, can I just say to you, believers, saints in Christ Jesus, ABC, if we do repent, oh, like the goodness of God on the far side. There'll be times of refreshing. There'll be fruitfulness. Um, we have prayed for salvation. We've prayed for breakthrough in that. I just, I don't make any guarantees, but I know the Lord enough to say that if we repent and truly return to him, just watch out. It'll be good. But if we don't, if we won't, if we're the ones who like, hmm. or if you, uh, I don't know, think that I'm overstepping and get frustrated at that. I mean, the Lord's done an incredible thing here in the last three years, but there still is, you repent or else I'll come and the lamp stem that is ABC will be gone. I'll hit the button back in. I uh, had been, would be tempted to end it there, but um, one thing I just went before the Lord and I'm kind of convinced of is um, I'm wary of that spiritual high. I'm wary of the filthiness of the spirit. I'm wary of just like stopping there and like forcing anything. I don't want that. We want fruit that remains. We want genuine repentance, not just remorse or some show. So I'm gonna finish the, uh, the message and then, um, but if you need to get up or do anything, by all means, but... Um, yeah, we want a genuine work of the Spirit, not some manipulation of the flesh. So, um, time back in. Number three, our means of escape. Just talked about the fact that if you got rid of one idol, there'll be seven more coming right back in. So, um, how do we escape? Someone want to read 28 through 30 of Luke 18? Thank you, Tom. Awesome. Thanks, brother. I'll just give you our means of escape. Um, if you want to write this beside, you can put yesterday's single I. Um, you could put what the KJV says, low. Mine says C. Um, in my notes, I just put our means of escape is look upon the rich young ruler. Look upon the rich young ruler. And um, some of you are looking at me very confused. You're like, why would we look at him? <laughs> like, he went away sorrowful and sad and was kind of not too bright with that and is in like a Christless eternity. Why would we look to him like as a warning? No, I, I didn't mean that rich young ruler. Do you see the other one? There's two in here. Jesus Christ was 32, maybe 33 years old when this encounter took place. And uh, was he rich? Owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Was he a ruler? King of kings and lord of lords. And yet... Though he was rich and perceived time left on earth, he, um, it was days, weeks, maybe months from this that um, he was willing as a young man to give up his life. And um, rich, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And a ruler, <laughs> Daryl was talking about it before, Philippians 2, it wasn't robbery, it wasn't a stretch for him to be in God's presence and be equal with God, and yet he became a servant and came in the likeness of sinful flesh, right? Yet he made himself of no reputation whatsoever. I always love that Mark 10. He looked at a man who was about to reject him over some shekels or whatever that amounts to, and he loved him. And I always wonder, what is going through the Lord's mind when he looked at him and looked at his soul, his heart, and said, I love you? You just have to wonder, it's like, my friend, I know the trouble you're going through. I've been there. In fact, I'm going there. Yes, I've been stripped of my glory, but I'm going to be stripped of my friends and my garment and my comforts, stripped of my own life so that I can follow the will of God, follow that which my Father's called. Right? I'm going to have to look through the cross for that joy that's set before me. If only you'd look at me and love me. 
he'd have no problems, Job 22, just dropping the gold in the dust. And for us, can I tell you it's the same thing? Um, and might, might I suggest to you, it's not just look to Jesus for what he's done, although that's beautiful, but look to who he actually is. Look to him as Jesus Christ the holy and just behold. Like when Nick and I, or myself in particular, talk to young folks, usually young men, about um, what to look for in a future spouse, to be one with, um, I find myself always going to Proverbs 31, telling them about character. Spiritual character is key. I know she's um, beautiful outward, but um, beauty's fading, folks, right? No one looks as good at 73 as they did at 23. And um, her charm, her personality, that you just can't get enough of time with her, can I tell you there's no one whose soul or personality or charm is gonna be enough for a whole lifetime to be charming? Save for one. As you get to know Jesus Christ, you're gonna find out his beauty's not fading, it grows. His charm, his personality, who he is, his holiness and difference, yeah, that will enthrall you for a lifetime. And his character is off the charts. I mean, do you see him rushing one morning to the point of exhaustion so he can make a noon hour meeting? Where? Samaria. With who? A woman? Like, who else could talk to a woman who's had five husbands, five divorces, now is common law, who's going there because the whole town has, no, it's nothing to do with her. Who else could say the things that Jesus Christ says to her and not get slapped in the face or spat at? Who else could say that? And she'll go back to the very people that don't like her and she says, come see a man who knows everything I've ever done and he still loves me. That's my own addition. Who else could, like the chapter before, open up his schedule? Do you see him open up his schedule late at night for someone who's a teacher and leader amongst the group of people that are like scheming his own death to torment him and kill him? Who else would talk to Nicodemus about childbirth, meanwhile talk to this woman of Samaria about places of worship and win them both? Do you see him? Do you see him on the way to the cross? Who else would say, don't weep for me? Weep for yourselves. Who else would be so selfless that in torments unspeakable, excruciating, the worst word we have for pain, which means out of the cross, would be repeatedly saying every time you sinned against, Father, forgive them. Who else would be looking and saying, oh, woman, behold your son, son, behold your... Who else could comfort someone who's in the anguish and pain of crucifixion and bring comfort by simply saying, today, it's only a couple hours left. Who else could say to Peter later on, tell him that one day you're gonna die by the thing that you never wanted to go to, the cross, and that would be a word of comfort by simply saying, when you are old, you're not gonna fail me. Do you ever wonder why Peter in Acts 12 was sleeping like a baby when Herod was planning to kill him the next day? Herod didn't have the power to crucify him. And who else, John 19, read it yesterday, when he knew everything was finished, actually stayed on the cross longer, licked a sponge, we won't go into that, so that we would know it's finished. Do you see him? If we truly look to him and see him, we'll love him. And as it says in the Old Testament, you look to him and you'll live, you'll enter into eternal life. I'll close by just saying this. I'll bring this full circle. We started off talking about Jesus Christ being holy, which is different. Just saying, let's look to him and you see his holiness and to behold him as he is is just glorious. He's our means of escape. It's not some four-part program. It's not um, no, 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 no. It's just saying yes to him and when you see him, you'll drop all the riches. But perhaps the key to understanding, because there's still everything I introduced in saying, what was Jesus going after? The key to unlocking and understanding what was going on here is to go back, whether the rich young ruler knew what he was asking or not, but he said, what must I do? In the Greek, it could be what else, what more can I do to inherit or enter or possess eternal life? The key to understanding this entire thing is just understanding what is eternal life. When I grew up, I thought eternal life was um, a place, like heaven. Um, 
I thought it was like some future event, some like quantity forever. But if you actually look at Greek, the word for eternal, ahinos, virtually every scholar's agreed it's not about quantity, it's about quality. Some scholars talk about like, it's talking about reality, real life. My favorite is John 10 where he says, I've come to give life and then he says life to the full or life more abundant. Jesus Christ talks a lot about eternal life. You find out when he's at the woman at the well, he says, "Ah, you drink of that stuff, you're gonna thirst again. You drink of what I give you, you won't have to drink again. It'll actually bubble up, spring up into this eternal life. John 6, right after feeding the 5,000, the next day they're coming back and like, hey, you wanna do it again? He says, "Don't, don't labor for food that perishes. I'm the bread of life. You feed on me, it'll endure into eternal life. You actually read through the Gospels and you find out that eternal life isn't future, though it is, but it's also present. You believe in Jesus? John 3, 36. He who believes has, present tense, eternal life. John 5, 24. Surely I say unto you, he who hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's why he starts talking to his disciples and, yo, you've left all? It's not just in the future you're gonna get eternal life. In the presence, it's gonna be better. It's interesting, though. There is an aspect to eternal life that actually falls on us as well, though. You'll read a few places that Jesus says to his own followers, those who have already forsaken, followed, and clearly believe in him, he says, um, hey, you willing to lose this life, this natural life? You willing to even hate your natural life? You lose it, you'll find it. You hate it, you'll keep eternal life, John 12. You even get like Paul, twice in 1 Timothy 6, telling to Timothy, his follower, his son in the faith, who he's fully convinced is a believer, he says, lay hold of eternal life. He has it, but now you gotta lay hold of it. What's eternal life? We'll finish with this. Turn to the one gospel we haven't gone to. John 17, please. Yesterday, our brother took us to the end of it. I'll just read to you the beginning. Verse three of John 17. If we didn't have this nugget, this would be a great theological debate. We do have it, though. John 17, verse three. Here's Jesus talking to his father, and he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you. It's subjunctive. It's the idea of growing the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. You wanna know what eternal life is? Knowing God. You go back to the garden and God said, the day, Adam, that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. When Adam ate of the fruit, did he keel over? He lived 930 more years and eventually keeled over. It says Eve was deceived, but Adam right there looking at her, a very good gift from God, And knowing he should not eat that, what's he gonna do? Is God following him, obeying him, worshiping him? Or in God's good gift, what's he gonna go for? And he chose the created thing over the creator. And very interestingly, I would suggest to you, he died that day. I don't read anywhere after that, after being banished, that he had communion and fellowship and conversation with God again. It's not till Jesus Christ shows back up on the scene and says, hey, you believe in me. Eternal life's right there. Eternal life simply, folks, you and I were made to run on God. And when we're found in Jesus Christ, we have the ability to know him as he is. Not know about him, but to truly do life with him, have relationship with him, have true communion, experiential knowledge, the type of knowledge that I have with Nicola. You know about her, I know things that you don't. So that when I look across the room, she's not here right now, I can know what she's thinking and to grow into that. And it's a lot better than simply just knowing some facts. This young guy comes to Jesus and says, look, I'm rich. I have everything that I can see, but something's missing. I'm not satisfied. I'm not fulfilled. What more can I possibly do? He's looking at Jesus as like some supplement just to sprinkle on top of things. And Jesus says, you want eternal life? You want to enter into the reality? You want fullness? You want satisfaction? You want joy inexpressible, full of glory? Peace that passes understanding? Satisfaction? Sure thing. But I look at your heart. I want to be in your heart. I want to fill that thing. But there's other things in there right now. 
You get rid of your small G God, come follow me, and you'll know me as your capital G God, and you'll find it. For us here today, I just want to suggest to you that it would be a good thing if before we laid our heads down on the pillow tonight, we asked the Lord to show us if in our heart there's some small G gods, there's some idols that are getting in the way of us entering into eternal life now. The joy, the satisfaction, the reality of walking into what we've been made and created for. For those of us who don't know Jesus Christ here today, yeah, it does start with believe, and he'll show you the things to get rid of. For those of us who do, oh, that it would not be a difficult thing for us to simply change our thinking about the things that are getting in the way. Ask the Lord to show us to get rid of them. How do we break them, burn them, crush them, destroy them, utterly abhor, utterly detest them? And then as we come and follow him, the life we'll enter into. I'll hand it back over to Kurt, if that's okay, brother.